Welcome to Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment. Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Sophisticated Property Investor podcast. I'm Frank Fleck, and I am here today with Tony Burdett from Northern Ireland. Welcome, Tony. How are you, sir? Hi, Frank. I'm fine, thank you. Bar a few hiccups in trying to get onto the call with you. One of the things I want to chat to you about today is that we all come into EPP with different skill sets and I think the way that you've overcome the challenges that you face with software and computers and information technology is remarkable mate and I do want to talk about that because you when we delve into your history in a little while we'll talk about your massive experience in property which is obviously a massive benefit but then you know I I think I'm right in saying you still haven't had a 90-day plan on a spreadsheet and like I take spreadsheets for granted but no one ever comes into EPP with every single box ticked you know so don't worry about it at all I'm glad Sophia, my PA, was able to talk you through it. And I'm glad we've got you on the line, mate. So uh, no problems at all. I'd like to kick off, Tony, by asking you to describe your history and property leading up to becoming a, a partner in EPP, mate. It was certainly right just before the year 2000 when I first delved into property. That was over here in Northern Ireland. Um, I uh, was actually running a weight control clinic at the time. And um, I was sort of semi-thinking of buying a house or something. I was kidding out this office. So I went to an office furniture auction one day and there was a property auction in the same building in a different room. And I then went into it and just sat through it and I was kind of hooked. And uh, I didn't buy anything at that auction, obviously, but at the next auction, I think that was certainly the next auction, I bought a wee terraced house, did it up and sold it and that was the beginning of the way it was going you know and then I just bought one after the other refurbed them I got to know I was living in London briefly uh, in Crystal Palace and this fellow rang me who I, I hadn't spoke to him in a wee while and he told me that the flat that I lived in a wee studio flat was up in an auction funnily enough for sale and it transpired there was uh, some legal issues with it with the lease I ended up buying it I'd kind of if I hadn't had the experience in auctions, I wouldn't have gone near it, but I kind of I got to know a wee bit how it works. So I ended up buying that one. I've still got it, actually. So that was the beginning of the journey in southeast London. So between the early 2000s and 2007, I think I bought close to 30 properties in South, all flats in southeast London, and just did them up. I'd given up this the weight control clinic up by then, because I love doing the property stuff, you know, and I was never into it big, big time. I'd just make a turn in each property and on to the next one. And I love doing stuff in London as well, too, and the throwing, and I love the buzz in the big auction rooms. I got to know a lot of people. 2007 came, and that put an end to all, <laughs> all of that overnight, virtually. I was then in limbo, basically, for quite a long period of time, because everything was frozen the banks eventually took everything away from me that there was any equity in and i was left with a number of properties here that had no equity that were in negative equity the things that i owned were sort of bottom of the range 140-ish thousand i'd say at the peak um, and they went down to 40 odd thousand within a couple of years after that 2007 crash the bank didn't take them off me because I was way underwater with other lenders with, with them. And I still 
to this day, I've got those. A couple of them are still negative equity and others aren't. But uh, yeah, so that was my journey up until then. And as I say, a few years then in limbo, where I was doing very little except living off the, the rents and <clears throat> most of my London stuff had gone. Um, I, I mean, looking back, I should have gone bankrupt. I would, have, I would have been far better off for a number of reasons going bankrupt, but I, look, I didn't. Um, and I was just juggling plates for a good while. I managed to gather enough money together. This was now not about six months before the crash. And I bought a tiny wee studio back in southeast London and did it up around the same time. And we're talking very close to COVID here. I went to that. I was, I was sort of trying to you know, get back into property in a way without a lot of money and I, I uh, went to a pin meeting I'd never been to a pin meeting before over here in Belfast that's the first time I came across EPP actually and I met Ian Jackson he wasn't pushing it I, I made an appointment to go and see him to find out more about it he didn't persuade me it was the right thing to do but I knew I needed a new outlook on property it was it was too much of same old same old you know um, and I was stuck in a rut I very quickly decided to join EPP and that was literally on the cusp of COVID. Great timing there then, Tony. Yeah, so that all happened very quickly within the space of about six weeks, I'd say, from when I first heard about it at the pen to when I was actually at a a training meeting over at Crumlin Road Jail, I, I think it was, with a number of other guys. Yeah, I've been involved since. It was about being part of a team as opposed to Things aren't going well, and they haven't been going well for a number of years, and I couldn't really see a way out as such. I think that being part of a supportive team, being part of a community is absolutely invaluable. I I absolutely agree. We'll come on to your experience in EPP and your results since, but I think previous to this meeting, you you said you'd, you'd done about 52 flats in total, or 52 properties in total, and you said you had about 30 in southeast london when the crash came in 2007 2008 how many did you have in london at that point and how many did you have in northern ireland as far as i can remember i think i had 29 properties in london southeast london of which i then subsequently lost 22 i was left with eight the rest got taken away from me and over here i had a, about 22 or 23 properties, of which I only lost a handful because the rest were in negative equity with other lenders. So my didn't take them away from me, you know. I think, although this may be painful for you, I think the value that we can get out of exploring this is massive, mate, because we've spoken on the podcast previously um, with other guests I've spoken with. You know, a lot of people are predicting a crash now we've had a very inflated market for a long time we've got inflation really high we've got interest rates shooting up to counteract that inflation it's got all the markings of a crash you know crash sounds really dramatic a correction in the market a a softening of the market um, a decreasing house prices, you know, however you want to phrase it. But it doesn't feel very different, to, in my mind, to 2006, 2007, where we're at right now. Like people 
were saying it's amazing. Look at all this capital growth. I wouldn't be surprised if next year or the year after were very similar to 2008, 2009 with very different reasons. You know, obviously then it was the subprime mortgage market and now it's the war in Ukraine and COVID, etc. My question for you, mate, is that is an incredible success story right up until you lose them all. So, you know, the chances of walking, and, and I don't mean that in a harsh way, that sounds really harsh. And I should, I should emphasize, emphasize, Tony and I get on really well, you know, <laughs> so I'm not having a go at him uh, in any way, but amazing story that, you know, you went in to buy some furniture and there's a property auction there. You, you said it as if it was obvious, you know, obviously I didn't buy at that first auction. So many people do, Tony. So credit to you, you know, for taking your time and finding out about it and then starting slowly. There's that amazing period. I think you said it was 99 to 2007. So there's like eight years where you've done five, six, seven deals a year, which is amazing. Keeping lots of them as well. What went wrong? So 2007, interest rates went up, but not massively. Like from memory, they hit 6% or something. Banks got really scared and getting mortgages got really hard. But what was it for you that was the undoing and and led you to lose, you know, um, 30 odd properties? Well, it was, I mean, listen, things were different here now, Frank, to over the water with you. You know, the, the, the reasons for the crash were different. Hundreds and hundreds of people in the south of Ireland were spending their money up here. And then when that dried out, but also, I mean, I I'd bought a, over a period of time, actually, a row of old shops down about half a mile from the city centre here in Belfast. And that was my undoing because I borrowed a lot of money. I got planning permission to convert them into 28 apartments and shop and retail on the ground floor. I can remember it. I mean, it was May, June time in 2007 and things just stopped. Now, I didn't have them developed. I had planning permission and they were valued in February, March time, 2007 at 3.2 million with the, the site with planning permission. I'd had it agreed for sale. And then the say that the buyers pulled out before the crash, just before the crash, I'd say about a month beforehand. And subsequently, just as out of interest, because it stayed in my name for years and years, it was sold for £95,000. So that's a bit of a drop from £3.2 million to 95000 They sold it through Savills here in uh, Belfast. But yeah, so that, that's what happened here. And things fell a lot more than they did over your way. On average, my properties I had were all sort of terraced houses in not great areas. Average value 140, 145, and down to about 40,000 pounds. You didn't, you didn't have that kind of a drop. Oh, that's, we, I've chatted to Ian Jackson. In fact, we've done an episode on, on it on here. Yeah, 60, 65, 70% drops in value is unbelievable. Yeah. Just drilling down into that, that's a big deal. I get that. Um, a big deal for you at the time. Was it that everything was held personally? So when that one deal went wrong, they it sucked in everything else. They just went after everything with equity. Is that what happened? Yeah, I didn't have wherewithal or the brains to have things in companies, etc., etc. Everything was in my own name. If you just put that row of shops in a company, you would have been absolutely fine, would you? Would you have ridden out the credit crunch, no problems at all? I probably would have had a big amount, you know, as a guarantor type of thing, but I might have survived it, yes. I probably would have. Certainly, I'd have been a lot better off than, than the way it worked out. I, I wasn't 
talking to other people in the business about you know ways to set things up and I, it never even crossed my mind to set up a company and I mean it should have it doesn't look good looking back it doesn't look very professional the fact that I didn't even think to set up company do you know what though Tony you don't know what you don't know <laughs> things were going all right you know I mean look I wasn't fortune but I was every day I was making a bit of money and I was putting it into the next deal and, and I wasn't looking for a way to protect myself as such and who tells you to do that no one tells you what you're not doing when you're an entrepreneur you know you could have gone to an accountant they would have said well to set up a company is going to cost you this much you're going to have to spend this much a year to get your accounts done and you might have thought well that's a whole load of wasted money why do I want all that you know there's there's a million ways of looking at things but that's where the experience of a mentor comes in to say right you've done these great now we need to solidify those and protect them so let's do this one in this it's really interesting I did a podcast recently on the 27 flats that I bought I don't know if you know this Tony I bought 27 flats recently did did you know that no this is uh, recently i've um, completed on a deal it was um 27 flats it was five properties all from one vendor rick's valet 3.6 million and we bought it just completed at 2.5 so really good deal big biggest deal i've ever done and on that podcast where i was talking about this i wasn't ready psychologically to go and borrow two and a half million quid on one deal or to get a 1.1 million pound discount on a deal up until that point because if I'd been ready psychologically I would have gone and done it but I didn't do it because I wasn't ready and what I said on that podcast was but now I've done that I could go do a five million pound deal you know if I can buy property for 3.6 worth 3.6 million I can easily go buy property worth five million and I reckon once I'd done a five million pound deal I could probably do a 10 and I reckon once I've done a 10 I might be able to do 20 but here's what I'm thinking in hearing you, and I've, I've seen this so many times, people without loads of education, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I go on loads of courses, I go on all my competitors' courses just to see what they're teaching, to see if I've missed anything, to check that I'm cutting edge. I partner with people that are more experienced than me in property so I can learn from them. You know, we're, we're always evolving. Unless you're investing in that education, I think it's really easy to do exactly what you've done. And hopefully this will make you feel better because you had something that was working. And when something's working, you look at how you can do more of it. So the way that you do more of it is you either do it faster. Now I got stung in 2009 I don't know if you know this but I was doing flips in 2009 I did I want to say 26 flips I think I'm right with that number it's a long time ago now (laughs) in 2010 I got caught with 10 of them so we were doing more and more and we were getting better and better funding and it might have been 2009 and we finally sold them in 2010 I can't remember the exact uh, date but basically we were only holding them for about six weeks so we were doing the works while the vendor still owned them we were were buying them and we were starting the conveyancing to sell them basically on the day we were buying them we were selling them within about a six week holding period and all of a sudden the mortgage rules all changed it was actually start of 2010 the rules changed and so this wasn't credit crunch directly it was an outcome of the credit crunch I got basically stuck with my trousers down on these 10 deals and oh we couldn't sell them for love nor money because no one could get a mortgage on them and it occurred to me then and I've seen it a lot since, we were only 
stuck. I lost a couple hundred grand, basically. I'd made a lot of money, but then I wiped out a lot of my profits because we'd just gone, my business partner and I had just gone bigger and faster and greater numbers. And and you can either do bigger deals, which is what you've done. But the problem is, if I did that, and I don't intend on doing this, but if I went from this 3.6 million pound deal to a five and then to a 10 and then to a 20 at some point a deal is going to go wrong because they don't all go right if you keep doubling down and going bigger and bigger you're basically guaranteeing that you're going to lose it all <laughs> because when the one goes wrong doesn't matter how many have gone right if you keep doubling down and going bigger when that one goes wrong it's likely if you haven't structured it correctly to unwind all the good you've done and so i think it's really common tony really really common to not be thinking about all those other things like how can I mitigate my risk like my um, brother-in-law works as a treasurer for a large PLC I didn't even know what a treasurer was but it's basically managing the money resources that they have they have millions of pounds in their bank at any one time and they lend it out for one day they lend it out for a week they lend it out for a month they borrow in and I was talking to him about interest rate rises because obviously it's a risk at the moment anyone with property knows that interest rates are are going up which means that your mortgage payments are likely to go up uh, and therein lies a, a risk for us and I was saying to him if your company owned a big portfolio of property, what would you be doing? And he said, I'd be taking bets against interest rates going up. And I said, that's interesting. What do you mean? And he said, well, you've got a portfolio. If interest rates go up by 1%, what will it cost you? And I did some mental maths and I said, oh, it cost me this much a month. And he said, okay, so let's just assume that interest rates go up by that much for two years how much would it cost you? And I, and I worked it out. And he said, so what you need to do, and he said, you could do this, is go down to William Hill. And it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But place a bet against interest rates going up by 1%. And he said, you won't get great odds, right? You'll have to put, you know, if you put 10 grand down, they might pay out 100 grand or something. But he said, then if interest rates do go up by 1%, you've not lost out because you get your 100 grand and that pays the interest for two years. And by that time, you hope that the interest rates will have come down. And I said, okay, but what if they go up by two? And he said, well, you put another bet on for that. And and he said, so you put a bet on against them going up by 2% and you get better odds because that's less likely. So you maybe only put down five grand and you still get, let's make the, that's easy, you know, a hundred grand payout if it goes up by 2%. And then if it goes up by 3%, you put another bet down and maybe that's three grand. And then you do it for 4%, you do it for 5% and they, the um, stake gets lower and lower. So he said, it might cost you 30 grand to put all these bets down. But he said, now you're insulated. You've insured yourself against interest rate rises. You don't have to sit there, you know, with your fingers crossed. He said, it's not good if interest rates stay low because you've wasted all that 30 grand in bets. He said, but it's not bad. You don't lose your your, your portfolio because it stayed nice and low. But he said, if interest rates do go up, you don't make money. You don't want the bet to pay out because if the bet pays out, all you're going to do is give that to the mortgage company anyway. But it's like a hedge. It's like an insurance policy against interest rates going up. And it just really like it opened my eyes to the fact that you can insure against anything. You can protect yourself against anything. You can get critical illness. You can get life insurance policies. You can go down to William Hill and insure yourself basically or hedge against interest rate rises. But no one teaches you that, do you? I've never, ever heard that on a property course, but it made complete sense to me. So 
my question for you, Tony, is if you could go back now to your 1999 self, so we're going back, what, 23 years, what would you do the same and what would you do differently? I would use some of the marketing techniques that I now use back then. I mean, it never, ever, ever crossed my mind and I didn't even know it existed, you know, to, to send leaflets out to every house in the street to see if somebody was interested in selling the house. Never, never would have crossed my mind. Mate, that would have made such a difference, wouldn't it? I hadn't even thought about marketing. Yeah, if you were going only to auction, you're instantly putting yourself in a competition with other people, other buyers. But imagine if you were doing BMV marketing then. I, I bet no one was doing marketing in the 90s. <laughs> I, I might be wrong there. I wasn't going out looking for different ways. You know, I just, uh, I knew, or I got to know what the auction system was all about. I'm not saying I was an expert, but, you know, sometimes I'd have bought after the auctions, although I didn't often buy before the auction, so either in or after. And uh, I've often wondered how my results would have compared. Mind you, it probably wouldn't have mattered. I'd lost them all anyway in 2007. But um, <laughs> you know. That's my question, though. Would you have structured it differently? Because, okay, so you would have marketed a bit smarter. You would have probably got more deals, probably better prices. But would you have structured it differently? And if so, how? You mean the way I'm set up in terms of companies and everything? Yeah, what would you have done differently? Well, I definitely would have had very little, if anything, in my own name uh, for a start. I don't know how, you know, as I was buying things, whether everyone would have been in an SPV or it had been one company for trading, you know, buying and doing up and selling and another company for holding stuff. But there'd have been companies involved, yeah, certainly, because I don't, well, I know for a fact I wouldn't have come unstuck to the same extent if I had things, that, you know, structured differently, you know. But yeah, and I wish I had these, the, the knowledge I have, I have now. Because back then I was doing a lot. And then there was a number of years, as I say, after the crash where I was in limbo. And then I'm doing my stuff again what I enjoy doing. Yeah, credit to you. And credit to you for picking yourself up because after being burnt like that, and I agree with you, I think it might have been easier to actually go bankrupt and and start afresh, but credit to you for hanging in there. Many, many people wouldn't have been able to pick themselves up. In fact, I've spoken to people that have previously bought 50, 100 properties, lost them all, and are not able to physically buy another property, just cannot bring themselves to do it, which is, um, yeah, all credit to you for doing that. So let's fast forward. It's March 2020. There's some rumors about some um, Chinese bird flu. (laughs) And you've joined EPP. So what have your results been in the last, what's that, two and a half years that you've been on EPP? I imagine a bit of a slow start, but how have you got on? I mean, I didn't know lockdown was going to be coming and all the rest of it at that stage. But I got one week's marketing, the first week's marketing done. And there was only five or 6,000 leaflets went out before lockdown. And out of that five or 6,000 leaflets, I got two deals. And they were very simple. In a way, it wasn't good because I thought, you know what, this is just, this is easy. Because it was, those two were basically on the phone on both of them. Before I went out to see them, I knew I was going to get them because of the way the conversation Wow, that's amazing. Now, don't ask why, I don't know. None of the ones breaks uh, subsequent to that have been, have been as simple. Do you know what? There's no stopping me now, you know. 
it was just too easy. But yeah, so things haven't been just as good as that <laughs> since then. And then some of the marketing in the middle basically got very, very, very few phone calls uh, for whatever reason. And um, yeah, but look, I've got 12 deals over the period of two and a half years. No, not all brilliant deals, but I've got 12 deals. Um, so yeah, I'm happy. Congratulations on that. And let's look at those 12 deals in terms of results. How much money did you have when you started in March 2020? Or how much money did you put into it? About six months before, it, it was the summertime of 2019 where I gathered enough money together um, maybe from a, a bit of inheritance to buy a wee flat in London for the first time since 2005 or six or whatever uh, in Crystal Palace, which is the area that I knew. And it was a wee studio flat that I did up. Knew nothing about EPP at the time. I had it for sale whenever I was at that pin meeting in January or February in 2020. So I got about 145,000 out of that, which I had for, it wasn't the, the plan, but it's the way it's worked out, you know. So I had that amount of money to put into EPP in terms of, you know, deposits and marketing, etc., etc. It's virtually all gone, actually. <laughs> it's virtually all gone. So let's look at what it's got you then in terms of results. So you say you've done 12 deals. How many of those have you kept? How many of them have you sold? I've kept seven. That includes a site, you know, that there's applying for planning permission for you know, it's not a property that can be rented out or anything at the moment. So there's six rented out. Okay, so you've kept six. You've got a development site potentially. How much equity across those six or seven? Again, not including the site, close to 200, 192. So 200 grand equity on the six. If you get planning permission on the site, uh, what will that then be worth? <laughs> Truth, I haven't a clue. Planning for uh, Three new build houses. It's, it wasn't a straightforward site because of, of an access problem, but three new build houses to the rear of an old building on a main street in a town about 15 miles away from here, and then conversion of the old uh, house that used to be a hairdresser's and, a, and the house into three apartments. Is that a really unusual layout one, like a, a U-shaped building that I've, I might have seen on a deal surgery? Basically a, a shop with residents. Uh, okay, it's a different deal then. Not to worry, not to worry. Thank you so much, sir. Really great to chat, and I'll look forward to seeing you uh, sometime soon in Belfast. You're welcome. Loved it. Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment.